Welcome to our Ecclesia study where we investigate the claims of the Bible. For many people, one of the main deterrents to accepting the teachings of Jesus is the noticeable disconnect between what Jesus taught and what many self-professed Christians say and do. As we investigate the Bible, we look into how C.I. Schofield and his reference Bible have influenced literally thousands of evangelical pastors and millions of evangelical Christians into fervently believing that the modern state of Israel is a fulfillment of biblical prophecy and should be revered and supported without question in spite of its undemocratic and inhumane treatment of both Christian and Muslim Palestinians for over 60 years of occupation. Our study leader is Mark Horton. To get notices of our new Bible examination programs, go to our website, whtt.org, and enter your email address in the subscribe to WHTT box on the right-hand side of the website. Thanks for joining in our quest. In today's Bible examination, we're continuing on with our study in the book of Hebrews. We're in chapter 10, and we'll be starting in verse 26. This is the fourth warning, danger of drawing back. And as we like to do, we'll open with a word of prayer. Thanks, Lord, for allowing us to come together again to study your word and to hear Mark's teaching. And we ask that you bless him during this time so that we receive the message and we'll be able to retain the message and to show it visibly to others by how we uh, live our lives. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Good evening, Mark. Good evening. It's good to be with everyone again here as we are proceeding to look again at the letter to the Hebrews and hopefully place it into its proper context, which is uh, so important and yet so neglected in so many churches today. The writer is continuing here in what we call the 10th chapter to encourage this Hebrew community of Judean believers uh, in a synagogue somewhere in the Roman world, somewhere outside of Palestine, as they we know they spoke Greek and used the Greek Old Testament that we call the Septuagint today. And he's quoting from the Septuagint, talking to people who are familiar with the Septuagint. And he's just let them know that they've got to stick together and they've got to help each other get through what's coming and let's I guess at this point read if we could uh, chapter 10 verses 26 through 31 please if we make the decision to sin after we receive the knowledge of the truth there isn't a sacrifice for sins left any longer there's only a scary expectation of judgment and of a burning fire that's going to devour God's opponents when someone rejected the law of Moses, they were put to death without mercy on the basis of the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think is deserved by the person who walks all over God's Son, who acts as if the blood in the covenant that made us holy is just ordinary blood, and who insults the spirit of grace? We know the one who said, Judgment is mine. 
I will pay people back. And he also said, the Lord will judge his people. Scary to fall into the hands of the living God. Thank you very much. Now, the we that he talks about in uh, in verse 26 as he begins here, or he's continuing thought, I believe in our context here we can see our is referring to Judean believers, and we'll look at that uh, in several points here in this paragraph. But they are contemplating abandoning the special meetings of the uh, Christians that met on the first day of the week, uh, the day after their Shabbat gathering at the synagogue, and just trying to slip back and be good synagogue members, pay their temple tax, lay low, don't talk about Jesus of Nazareth or anything controversial. And if they do that, he is suggesting that they would be deliberately sinning, and they are leaving behind Christ's sacrifice. And if you leave Christ's sacrifice behind, there is nothing at all left for sin. There is nothing rather but a fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation. This is the Greek word in verse 27, mellow. And mellow is a word that 90% of the time denotes imminence. It is something that is about to happen that is at hand. The King James translators, unfortunately, just said, it shall devour the enemies. But a more literal translation is, it is about to devour God's enemies. And there's vastly different meanings involved here. Since the King James translators, every time Mello appears a hundred and some odd times, 109 times to be precise, in the King James Bible, it just, they say, it will happen sometime in the future. But the original language said, this is about to happen. And so, at least since the Reformation, virtually every generation of Christians has decided that the enemies that they are facing in their lifetime are God's true enemies. That the persecution they are enduring in their lifetime is this horrible tribulation and judgment that God is talking about. And every generation since the Reformation has been wrong in applying it to their own times. So I'll ask our our audience here, who were God's adversaries at the time that this letter was written? The former Israelites. The Hebrews. Absolutely, Hebrews. We saw as we looked at the book of Acts a few months ago how that the physical nation of Israel, that generation of Judean people committed the most heinous crime imaginable against God and God's eternal purpose to create a perfect bride for his son and a people for his own possession. And as tempting as it may be for us to say, oh, no, God's enemies are President Obama 
or Secretary of State Hillary Clinton or just add to that ad nauseum, and that God is coming back soon to consume these evil people with fire. Every generation has done that, and every generation has been wrong. You know, you could make the case that people in every generation are the enemies of God. The Kaiser during World War One, Mussolini, then Hitler, then Stalin, so on. But God's purpose transcends human history, and God's purpose is more important than our current day uh, political viewpoint and political and economic problems. Well, there's more here. We'll see. Anyone? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, are, are you saying in uh, verse 26 that the sinning willfully, it just refers to the assembling of selves together? No, absolutely not. Now, that verse 25 is beat over the heads of people today to not miss any service of their church. Um, and they think, you know, they say it's talking about, as you see, the day approaching it's Sunday. But in the context, it is the day of judgment and fiery indignation, the day of the Lord mentioned by all of the prophets. That day was approaching, and it was coming very soon. Again, the word mellow, it was about to happen. It was about to consume adversaries, and God's adversaries were the Judean leadership and the Judean nation. I mean, you, all you look at all the Gospels, look at the book of Acts, look at all of the letters in the New Testament, and the enemy was the Judean people, the Judean leadership who opposed Christ, who rejected him. And these were the people that would stood opposed to God's eternal plan. Does that answer the question? Yeah, I just look at uh, verse 26. To me, it, that goes hand in hand with chapter 6, verse 4, where it says, For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the good word of God and the power of the age to come, and then have fallen away, it's impossible for them to renew again to repentance since they had crucified to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. It's that kind of the same idea that if you don't accept what Jesus has done, there's no other sacrifice. There's no plan B, in other words. You know, he is the only way that we can get back to the Father and be reconciled to the Father. So if you continue to sin, uh, and once having walked with Jesus, there's no way, there's no plan B. Well, certainly that's true. I would contend that it's even more the case for this specific audience because they are choosing to side with the very people who crucified the Son of God. And therefore, for them, it was even more applicable what the writer says, that you crucify afresh the Son of God, because they are choosing to abandon Christ and return to the enemies of God, the very people and generation who had crucified the Son of God. And I think that is the whole context here of the rest of this paragraph. Anyone who violated Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much worse do you think the penalty will be for one who has trampled the Son of God underfoot? You see, that's the same language you just read from chapter right. 6. Treated as something common, the covenant blood, 
with which he was sanctified and outraged the spirit of grace. So this goes to the parable in Luke 19. Perhaps this is a great time to bring that in. <laughs> Let's just go back to Luke 19. Now, the context there is that Jesus has just passed into Jericho on his last trip to Jerusalem. And we have the story of Zacchaeus. Does anyone remember that story, the little song from Bible class? Yeah, I can sing the song. But... Oh, good, yeah. Zacchaeus was a wee little man and all that stuff, climbed up into a sycamore tree so he could see Jesus. And this is the context that's building here. And Jesus told him, come down, I'm coming over to your house. And the Judean leadership present murmured, saying, he has gone to be a guest of a man who is a sinner. And Jesus says, Zacchaeus, I'm, I'm skipping through some of this, but says, today salvation has come to this house for so much as he is also a son of Abraham. Now, the Pharisees would have objected strongly to that statement. But you see, the kingdom of God is at hand in which everyone who believes in Christ's power of salvation becomes a son of Abraham by faith. And so no longer is it a question of blood genealogy, because the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which is lost. And right after he finishes telling this, he breaks into a parable, which is what I want to get into here. This parable is parallel to the letter to the Hebrews. Beginning in verse 11, he says, and as they heard these things, he added and spoke a parable because he was near to Jerusalem, and they thought that the kingdom of God was immediately to be revealed. And then he said, certain well-born man went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and to return. And calling ten of his slaves, he gave to them ten minas and said to them, trade until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, we don't want this one to rule over us. And it happened as he returned, having received the kingdom, he even said for those slaves to be called to him, those to whom he gave the silver, that he might know what they had gained by trading. And the first came, saying, Lord, your mine has gained ten minas. And he said, well done, good slave, because you were faithful in a Least thing have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mine has made five minas. And he said to this one also, And you be over five cities. And another came, saying, Lord, behold your mine, which I have stored up in a face cloth. For I feared you, because you are an exacting man, taking what you did not lay down, and reaping what you did not sow. But he said to him, I will judge you out of your own mouth, wicked slave. You knew that I am an exacting man, taking what I did not lay down, and reaping what I did not sow. Why did you not give my silver to the bank, so that at my coming I might have received it with interest? And to those standing by, he said, Take mina from him and give it to those who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. For I say to you, to everyone who has, it will be given. And from the one who does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. But these, my enemies, who did not want me to reign over them, Bring them here and kill them before me. And saying these things, he went out and went on going on up to Jerusalem. 
All right, so does this remind you of a better-known parable? The one that left the vineyards? Well, all of those vineyard parables are certainly similar. I was thinking more, you know, it has all the detail of he gave the one ten and the one five and the one one. Talents, yes. Exactly, the parable of the talents. And guess where that is found, if my memory serves me? Yep, that is in the Gospel of Matthew. But where do you think it is in the Gospel of Matthew? It is at the end of Matthew. It is right after the Olivet Discourse where Jesus predicts the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. And many people think that he changes context abruptly in the middle of chapter 24 and starts talking about the fiery judgment at the end of the universe when everything will be consumed in fire and that's what chapter 25 is talking about but if we note the parallels between chapter 24 and Luke 21 if we note the parallels between Matthew 25 and this parable in Luke 19 we see that all the elements are the same but in Luke all of the elements are clearly in the context of an imminent judgment on Jerusalem. And I would contend that we have been deceived for generations, for 500 years, into believing that Matthew 24 and Matthew 25 are speaking about the end of the universe as we know it, when in reality they are simply answering the questions that the disciples asked after Jesus in chapter 23 had cursed the scribes and the Pharisees and told them that their house would be left unto them desolate. And the disciples, when they got up to the top of the Mount of Olives, they said, Lord, tell us, when will these things be? What is the sign of your presence and of the end of the age? And the King James Bible mistranslated that to say the sign of your coming and of the end of the world, but that is the Greek word eon, the end of the age. And then the chapter 24 and 25 are Jesus' answer to their question, which is all one question, when will he make his presence known by completely destroying the temple and not leaving one stone left on the other? which would obviously be the end of the age of Moses and the temple. It's very simple. It's very consistent. And the Gospel of Luke demonstrates that this is, in fact, the context of Matthew 23, 24, and 25. But that's another story. Hmm. Now, in Luke 19... We will dwell just on the beginning and the end of this parable. He spoke the parable because he was getting close to Jerusalem, and everyone thought that the kingdom would appear instantly in a physical way when Jesus got to Jerusalem. And Jesus told them a parable because that's what they thought was about to happen. Okay, that's what it said in verse 11. So a certain nobleman went to a far country to receive a kingdom. So does that mean he had to go eight miles to receive a kingdom? 
No, that doesn't mean he had to go eight miles from Jericho up to Jerusalem to receive the kingdom. He had to leave his country to go to a far country to receive the kingdom. And he would receive the kingdom in a far-off place, and then he would come back. So you ask, why is that like the letter to the Hebrews? So you're all wondering that, right? Yes. Well, yes. Okay. So remember, in chapters 9 and the first part of chapter 10, he's using the symbolism of the Day of Atonement. Remember that? And all of Israel gathers in the outer temple courtyard while the high priest goes in to the Holy of Holies. What did the Holy of Holies in the temple in Jerusalem represent? God. God's presence. God's presence. Exactly. God's throne room, perhaps. Which, where do we commonly think of God as dwelling and reigning? In heaven. In heaven, yes. So, when the high priest, I would suggest, when the high priest went through the holy place and he went into the holy of holies, that's like leaving earth because the remember the outer courtyard of the temple represented earth. And the middle, the holy place represented paradise, halfway kind of in between, where Jesus went right after he physically died. He and the thief on the cross, they went together to paradise. But he hadn't yet ascended to where God was, because he clearly tells Mary that after he's resurrected, I have not yet ascended to the Father. So he's in paradise, and then he goes from paradise, he then goes into God's throne room. And hopefully he comes back. The high priest, you know, came back, the people waited in agony, wondering if he would be struck dead. Josephus tells us he had bells on his hem so they could hear whether he was still alive, and they had a rope wrapped around his ankle, so in case God struck him dead, they could drag his corpse out of the holy place without desecrating the Holy of Holies. And everyone's waiting with bated breath to see if the sin offering was accepted for another year. Otherwise, they were all out of luck. They weren't worried about the high priest's health, so much because most of the time he was a rotten individual but they were worried about the spiritual health of their nation they had to have that offering accepted so I would suggest to you that that whole ceremony was a picture of Christ death burial resurrection and ascension into heaven to receive the kingdom when did we see the kingdom initiated in the book of Acts. Does anyone remember? There was another feast in the Israelite calendar, the Feast of First Fruits or, or Pentecost, when the first fruits would be received and offered to God. And on that day, the 120 or so disciples who were still kind of hiding out in an upper room in Jerusalem, possibly a room built over the tomb of David himself, because upper rooms were special rooms designed for families to have banquets over the graves of their ancestors. And they were in an upper room, and the only tombs in Jerusalem were of David and a few of his descendants right down just a few blocks from the Pool of Siloam. 
down at the south lower end of the city, just inside the city wall. And so that's the only place in town there could have been a true upper room uh, located. But they're all kind of hiding out in there, and then all of a sudden the Holy Spirit descends on them, and then that's Acts chapter 2, where Peter says that everything that the prophet Joel written is now being fulfilled before your very eyes. So we have that uh, available as a podcast. Uh, encourage anyone to go back and listen to those um, sessions if you're interested in that. But you see, the kingdom is initiated on the day of Pentecost. Well, where's Jesus? Is he there physically? No, he is up seated at the right hand of the Father at that time. And he received the kingdom in a far-off country, but guess what? He is coming back. Just like the high priest came back out of the Holy of Holies and showed himself to the congregation of Israel, I don't know if they applauded or cheered or yelled and screamed, but they rejoiced greatly when they saw him. He made his presence known to them, which is the exact meaning of the Greek word parousia, which is mistranslated as second coming in the King James Bible. But Luke 19 is important because it demonstrates that he didn't receive the kingdom from the subjects of the kingdom right there. He went off to a distant country to receive the kingdom, and then he would return. And where did the judgment begin? It began with his own household, with his slaves. And in chapter 10, verse 29, the Lord will judge his people. Judgment will begin at the throne of God. Israel had a special blessing from God as the keepers of the law, but they also had a special curse because they were the keepers of the law, but yet they weren't the keepers of the law. And in this case, they failed dramatically. They violated Moses' law. They committed willful murder, and there was no offering for that, just as he says in verse 26, there's no further sacrifice for sins. If we, if we abandon Christ and side with his enemies, there is no sacrifice left for us. There was no sacrifice under the law of Moses for premeditated murder. And they are being accused of trampling the Son of God underfoot, treating as something common the covenant blood with which he was sanctified and outraging the spirit of grace. And I would just suggest boldly that there is no event in human history that has outraged the spirit of grace like the rejection and murder of God's own son by God's own special chosen people. I don't know if that's controversial or what, but again, any attempt to equate the Kaiser or Mussolini or Stalin or Hitler or Khrushchev or Saddam Hussein with what that generation did to Jesus Christ is bound to fall flat and make that predictor look like a fool. The ones who picked Saddam Hussein really fell flat on their face. 
But anyway, that's another story. Now, in verse 30, he says, We know the one who said, Vengeance is mine, I will requite. Well, guess where our writer is quoting from here. He is quoting from Deuteronomy 32, and when he says, And again, the Lord will judge his people. That is a quote from the Song of Moses, which we spent, I think, two or three sessions discussing when we looked at the book of Acts. The Song of Moses is the most heavily quoted part of the Old Testament, with the exception of probably the 110th Psalm, where the descent of David has promised that he will reign and put his enemies under his feet. But the Song of Moses, Deuteronomy 31, 32, is a song God taught Moses to teach Israel of what would happen to them in their final days, where they would commit a crime so heinous that no forgiveness was possible, that their last generation would be a twisted and perverse generation, and that in that final age, or final days, God would provoke them to jealousy with a people who are not a people, a nation who are not a nation. And Paul, as the apostle to the Gentiles, viewed the Song of Moses as his job description. He was out preaching to Gentiles to provoke the Judean nation to rage, to a fit of jealousy, just as the Song of Moses predicted. And then he sums this up by saying it is fearful to fall into the hands of the living God. The Judean nation was about to fall into the hands of the living God. The king was going to return from the far country and make his presence known, and he was going to scrape the city of Jerusalem off of Mount Zion and throw it into Gehenna, mistranslated hell in our Bibles, the ever-burning garbage dump south of the city. And our audience is considering siding with that very people who were about to be utterly and completely consumed for butchering the Son of God in blatant violation of God's word. Well, anyway, I might have gotten a little overzealous with that uh, explanation there. <laughs> anyway, any thoughts or comments on this? Again, we'd like to apply Hebrews to us today, and the principles are timeless, but the specific context for that audience reading this letter was absolutely horrifying. I mean, the choice they had before them it was life or death, but it was life or death with a passion. You don't want to fall into the hands of a God who has seen his own son murdered. And as what happened in our parable back in Luke 19, after reviewing the progress his servants made in his absence and being, you know, pretty strict with them, he then brings all those in front of him who didn't want me to rule over them, and he just calmly tells his servants to execute them right there in his presence. So, you know, you compare it, but I say it's a perfect fit for Hebrews, and I say it's a perfect fit for what Jesus said would happen from the Mount of Olives to the Judean nation. 
Well, great. Thank you, Mark. Thanks for listening. If you like this program, please let your friends know about it and our other thought-provoking podcasts. And be sure to visit our website, whtt.org, for a wealth of information on Christian Zionism and other critical issues that we face. Also, at whtt.org, you can watch for free our award-winning documentary film, Christian Zionism, The Tragedy and the Turning, Part 1. Join us in our efforts to wake the town and tell the people. Start small, think big, and press on towards the straight gate.